In your worship folder, you will find a, a helpful guide, an outline, and on the other side, uh, containing the sermon text for today, which you will see is found in Acts chapter 2. Also, I believe it's going to be, yes, on the screen behind me. So please uh, read along silently as I read aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are all filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Ivan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. I didn't introduce myself before. We continue in a series this morning that we began just this past week in the book of Acts. 
Uh, we spent quite a bit of time in Luke, and we're going to volume two of Luke's work in the, in the New Testament scriptures. He also wrote this book of Acts. Now, the thing about Acts, as you can tell, even from this text, is there's some pretty weird things that happen. Yeah, thank you. There's some strange things. And so the question that you're left to deal with is how normative, how normative is what we read here supposed to be? I mean, you read, you read these stories, you know, 5,000 people converted in a few days. Here, people beginning to speak in languages that they previously did not know. People being raised and, and healed, raised from the dead and healed, and earthquake prison breaks and these sorts of things. And then, you know, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? And then you look at the contemporary church, you come to a service like this, and really it's hard for you not to start to think, you know, kind of what happened? You know, where did things go wrong? Why doesn't the Christianity we see in the world today mirror what we read about here in the book of Acts? And should it? And there really aren't quick, easy answers to these questions, but I hope that as we walk through the whole book together, really for the rest of this year, uh, that we will come to an answer. But as a way of, as a way of introducing this, let me, let me say it this way. As we talk about this particular strange event here in Acts chapter 2 that's really, really important to the life of the church. There are two groups that answer the question I posed a minute ago in two very different ways, and they're the most widespread positions maybe in in evangelical Christianity. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, just to help kind of understand inside our house how things go, there's one group that would read the book of Acts and say something like, you know, it should always be like this. You know, if it's not like what we read here, then something's wrong. And Christianity today doesn't look anything like the Christianity we see in Acts, and that's a bad thing. And so what we need to do is we need to go back, and we need to figure out how to recover the things that we see here. So if you're not speaking in tongues uh, and, and seeing miracles all the time, the way that we'll see here, then, then it's not the real thing. It's less than, you may not even be a Christian at all, at the very least, you're a less than Christian. There's a group that would say that. Then there's another group. And, and this group would read Acts and they would say, well, it's no longer like that. If it's like that, if, if the modern expression of Christianity is like what we read here, then something's wrong, something's amiss, it's probably not real. These, these, these people, this group would admit that Christianity today doesn't look anything like the book of Acts, uh, nothing like the past, and they would see that as a good thing, that all of this stuff is, is a one-time thing that's in the past, we should move on, and so if you're speaking in tongues or doing these sorts of things, asking God for miracles, you're mistaken. You don't know the truth. You might even be being acted upon by spiritual forces that aren't the Holy Spirit because God doesn't do this anymore, and so it's not God. Now, there are both of these kinds of people in the church at large. Unfortunately for me, there are both of these kinds of people in this church and both these groups, which means that I have a very difficult job as I primarily am the one that's teaching through this this book. Uh, I don't have a shot, in fact, of really getting out of this alive. So, I'm asking you to pray for me because, because Acts challenge both, challenges both of these positions. They say, you should never fight a battle on two fronts. Well, guess what? That's exactly what I'm trying to do. That's exactly what I'm attempting to do because I think it's what the book does. And so, if I'm faithful to teach, if I'm faithful, if the people who are preaching, Jonathan and others, are faithful then we're going to measure, we've already had this conversation, we're going to measure our faithfulness in teaching this book by whether or not we take fire from both sides. So that's going to be hard. It's going to challenge us. We're going to have a lot of work to do in in working through this. Uh, And it's okay. I can take it. Don't worry about me. 
But let's wrestle, let's wrestle together as we go throughout this book. So Pentecost, this strange story of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God on the church. It's a strange text, particularly if churches are new to you. So how do we understand Acts 2? That really is the question before us as we approach this, this story. It's actually what the crowds ask. If you look there in verse 13, they have two questions, and that really does, um, the two questions they ask here really do frame the whole, the whole text. In verse 13, as these things begin to happen, they say, what does this mean? It's a good question, isn't it? And then down in verse 37, after they learn, Peter begins to teach them, and they get some context, and then they say, and what shall we do? And those are the two questions that I'm after an answer for this morning. What does this mean? What shall we do? How do we, modern people living 2,000 years removed from what's going on here in this text, how do we understand what, 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 what is this? And what difference does it make? What practical application does it have to my life? And so let's just start here that any discussion of these things has to begin with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Christians believe in one God, but who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son... Jesus Christ existed before he was born as a man. He shows up multiple times in the Old Testament scriptures, but at at, at Christmas, he came into the world in a way he had never come before to accomplish a specific act of salvation and deliverance for his people, to live a perfect life of obedience and die upon a cross for sins and be raised from the dead and ascended back to the Father. And from heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, like the Son... The Spirit existed before Acts 2 as well. He too is present in the Old Testament scriptures, but here in this story, he comes into the world as he has never come before to accomplish a specific work, to empower the church to continue Jesus' mission in the world. That's what's happening. So it's not that there's some substantially different thing going on here with the Spirit coming. Joel 2, we're told this fulfills Joel 2, and that, that passage in Joel 2, all of the emphasis on Joel 2 is that Though in Old Testament times and in ancient times, the Spirit would come on particular people with particular, you know, um, roles in the community, and the Spirit would come to help them fulfill the roles. Now, Joel 2 says, the Spirit's coming on all flesh. That means every single person in this room, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come upon you in power. That's what Joel's amazed at. So it's not the Spirit's working in a different way. He's working on a more wide scale than he has before and without distinction of person. And Joel said that's going to signal uh, the great move of God at the end. And so he's coming to the world in a way he never has before. But what shall we do? Now in the text we read, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, do you see that? Later in his letters to the church, the Apostle Paul writes as a command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. And so it's, it's, we're under obligation to that word. And so I want to just make a distinction really quick that I think will be helpful not only today but as we move forward. Uh, when you become a Christian, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and you become a Christian, you are, at that moment, filled with the Holy Spirit. God comes to live inside of you. So the smallest child in the room, the feeblest believer in Christ, has as much of the whole, of, of Holy Spirit in him as the most seasoned saint or the person who speaks in tongues and does miraculous things. That's the truth. It's the truth of the Bible. However, however... The Bible says things like, be being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, or First Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1, fan into flame the gift of God, that gift of God is the Spirit there, or stir up the gift, and we know what this is too, don't you? Fan it, so you have it, 
It's there, but you've got to fan it into flame. I like that analogy. You know this, right? You go on a camping trip, and you get a fire going in the fire pit, and it's raging as you go to sleep that night, and when you wake up, what's happened to it? There's not really anything left, but if you dig around in the bottom of the fire pit, you'll come across some coals that are glowing red, and of course, you put the kindling back on the fire, you build the fire, then you get down on your hands and knees, and what do you do? And as the breath comes and it catches those embers, they catch fire and the kindling begins to crackle and the fire's burning again. And that really is the image. That's the image that, that though the Spirit is in us, the, the Scripture says that we must fan it into flame. Fan into flame the gift of God. It really is, I mean, it really is just for simplicity's sake, it's an image of revival. It's what it means to be revived. To have an experience where Maybe, maybe the Spirit's presence or your sense of the gospel has been reduced to just a few glowing embers in your life. And then God blows. And it catches fire. So what does it mean? What does it mean for a person to have that kind of experience? What does it mean for a church to undergo that kind of experience? That's what this text is about. What does it look like? When, when God, if God were to come and blow on the embers of our, of our life and we would catch fire, what would it look like? And there are four things. Now, I know that was a long introduction, forgive me. It's a long sermon this morning, so if you're first time here, I'm sorry. I have no way around it. This is an important text, and we have to take time to deal with it. Uh, but, but we are going to be a little abnormally long this morning because there's a lot here. But here, four things. Four things. Look here. If, 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 if God were to come and to blow on the embers of our lives and catch us on fire, it would mean these four things. Number one, outside power coming in. Secondly, it would mean the inner circle moving out. Thirdly, it would mean the many becoming one. And lastly, it would mean the gospel warming the heart. All four of those things. So let's walk through this passage together, can we? What does it mean to be filled or to be being filled with the Spirit? First, it means outside power coming in. Not inside power going out. Now look here. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. If you've lived in Florida for much of your life, you, you've experienced something like this. If, if the last time hurricanes came through, you know this powerful experience of the, the power and the noise of, of wind. These people experience a power coming from outside of them. This was not an internal psychological or emotional experience. They all felt it. They all heard it. They were all together praying, and then suddenly the sound of a hurricane and really not even from outside of them, it was outside of the world. Look, verse 2, from heaven. There came from heaven a sound, we're told. And so this immediately puts us on a collision course with our culture in both its irreligious and its religious forms about what our problem truly is and what the solution ultimately is as well. See, the culture says that our problems all come from outside of us and that the solutions all come from inside. I mean, this is the mantra of our irreligious age, isn't it? Whatever you aspire to be and do, you have all the power and creativity and resources within yourself to make it happen. Just be true to yourself. Just believe in yourself. See, that's your problem. You don't, you don't believe in yourself. You've not unlocked the potential within yourself. And if you could just figure out how to do that, then everything would, would be okay. So look inside. Believe in yourself. So the problem is, is the stuff happening around you. The real problem, then, is the dysfunctional family that you were raised in, the corrupt political establishment that keeps you down. You, you are the solution. Lori Gottlieb, in a um, piece that she wrote for the New York Magazine a couple of years ago, she was a, a therapist who, uh, who saw her, th- her, her counseling center dry up, and so she became 
a journalist. She interviewed, she wrote an article called What Brand Is Your Therapist? And she interviewed a number of, of um, therapists who were observing a change in the people who ended up in their offices. Uh, these people she interviewed, they said that, you know, years ago people went to therapy because they got to a place in their life where they realized, you know, something's wrong and I really need to understand myself so that I can figure out how to change. Now, in this article that you know, she reported, now people feel like my problems are, are because there are people out there that need to change. So the whole article was, you know, how do, how do counselors do public relations and how do they advertise their businesses? And what, one therapist she interviewed talked about the marketing that she does, and she said, you know, her pitch, she really had to change her pitch. Her pitch at one point was, Something like, you know, I help people with depression and anxiety. And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, no problem. People resonated with that, and the phone was ringing off the hook, and she had more people than she knew what to do with. But then she noticed that people stopped responding to those kinds of marketing ploys. And so what she did, she was saying, so I had to change my marketing pitch, and now my marketing pitch is no longer I treat people who, you know, have depression or anxiety. Now the marketing pitch is, are you having trouble with difficult people in your life? And all of a sudden, the phone started ringing again. And the point she was making is that in the article is that we are now a whole culture of people who say, if I've got a problem, it's not me, it's you. You see it everywhere, don't you? Now, ironically, the more religious you are, the more likely you are to fall into the same trap. For a religious person, the problem might be different, but the solution is the same. You know, you're struggling with lust? Well, what's the solution? Well, you better try harder. You need a breakthrough. What do you need? You get more faith. And where does the faith come from, by the way? It comes from you. I mean, the difference between a religious person and a Christian is that a religious person thinks the solution comes from them, right? A better, a better life by becoming a better me. You hear, you hear this everywhere. But Christianity is the complete opposite. Christianity says the problem always comes from inside you. The solution comes from the outside. Jesus is very clear. Murder, adultery, theft, relational conflict and sexual immorality and all of these things, Matthew 15, they come out of the heart. So if there's a struggle in your marriage or if there's a conflict in a relationship that you're trying to wade through, Christianity would say, look inside yourself first for the cause. And this is why Christian people, if they're really Christian, see, that's the problem is there's a lot of Christian people who aren't really Christian, they're just religious, but Christian people who are really Christian they always confess their sins before they criticize others. Because they know, I'm the problem, not the solution. I'm not the solution. I'm definitely not the solution. You need spiritual power. It doesn't come from you. It's God's power you need. You need a righteousness, the Bible says. In order to be right with God, that doesn't come from you either. It's the righteousness of God you need. So salvation is always what God is doing outside of you. It's always what he's doing for you. It's God's doing, not yours. But the culture's trained us to think, if there's a problem, it's not me, it's you. And ironically, this is supposed to make us feel better, isn't it? But how hopeless if all of my problems are because of other people. I can't control other people. I can't, I can't make them change. How frustrating is life? This is why we're so angry all the time. We are angry all the time as a culture. I mean, drive the roads. Cut somebody off. Holy cow, what are they going to do to you? I was on Cypress Gardens Boulevard the other day. Dude pulled over in the middle of Cypress. And that's a busy street. Just so he could shake his fist at the guy that got out of the car and kind of started running down the road after the guy that cut him off. Think we are angry. 
We are so angry and desperate. Why? Because if you believe that every problem has to do with somebody else, you only have one option. You've got to be angry at him and then angry at them. And then and every person you come across, you're going to be angry with. How frustrating is that going to be? But if, if your main problem is you, there's hope. You see? Because you can work on you. God has power that can come into your life to change you. And so that's the promise of this text. The promise of the text is God's power coming down, coming in. And that's good news. Now, if that's what this is about, then what difference does it make? What should we do? And here's what we need to do. We need to change the way we think about spirit fullness. We, the mark of spirit fullness is inward change. Jonathan Edwards on a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 argued that the gifts of the spirit are lesser than the fruits of the spirit. He said, and it's an analogy, it's an analogy that's kind of crude, and so please forgive me. It really, I don't know how to say it any other way than this, but this is basically what he said. He was more refined because he, he lived 300 years ago than me, so I just don't have the resources at my disposal that he did. But he said... You know, if you're really not that attractive, then you can do, there's a number of things you can do. You can, you can um, find clothes that hide the places of the parts of your body that you don't like. He said, or, you know, you can, you can go get jewelry and makeup and you can adorn your body with beautiful things in order to look beautiful. And he, and he said, that's the, that's the spiritual gifts. They're outward adornments of grace and power that don't change your inner nature. So underneath them, you're no different. You may look different, but you're really no different. But the fruit of the Spirit, he said, is not a beautiful dress or beautiful jewelry. The fruit of the Spirit is you becoming beautiful. You becoming a jewel. And so, um, you know, people who are patient and kind and humble are beautiful people. And so we have to be careful not to act as if the gifts of the Spirit are the big deal and the fruits of the Spirit are not, or vice versa. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, says, If I speak in tongues and have faith to move mountains but don't have love, I'm not, I'm not patient, I'm not kind, I'm not gentle, he says, if that's the case, then all that other stuff is a whole lot of nothing. It counts for nothing. The spiritual gifts are, are, a whole, are variables. Some have this one, some have another. It's hard to measure the Spirit's work in your life with gifts. They come and they go, but the fruit of the Spirit is constant. No matter who you are, no matter what functions you perform, you should be loving and kind and patient and self-controlled. And so the best measure, the best measure of the spiritual, of, of being filled with the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Not to minimize the gifts. The gifts are important, but it's easy to mistake talent for spiritual power. And the problem goes back to the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not a power. He is a person. Did you notice last week that when Jonathan referred to him, he didn't use the at the beginning? He just said Holy Spirit? He said, I asked him about it later. He said, well, we don't say the Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ came into my life, and the Jesus Christ is Lord. The Holy Spirit, I, I was listening to a sermon a pastor preached on, on this text, and he kept referring to the Holy Spirit, and he would say, it, it comes into your life. It does this. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's a he. He's a person. Now, he's a person with power, but he's a person before he's a power. Holy Spirit loves. He speaks. He teaches. He, he rebukes. You can grieve him. You can tempt him. If, if the Holy Spirit is just a power, then the gifts are the big deal, but if he is a person, then the bulk of his work must be to make us into people like him. And so a sure sign that you're being filled with the Spirit is there's a new power at work in your life. There's a new power. And for us as a church, a church filled with the Holy Spirit means more than just an increase in attendance and activity. It means that you look around and you can say, man, people's lives are being changed. That's what revival would look like. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it means outside power coming in. But secondly... That was the longest one, by the way, so don't panic. Okay, we are going to get out of here in time to get to lunch, I promise. Secondly, it means, it means the inner circle moving out. Not only outside power coming in, but the inner circle 
Moving out, recall what Jesus said in chapter 1 that we looked at last week. You will receive power on, from on high and you will be my witnesses. So what's the, the reason for the power there? It's to enable and aid the work of witness. The Spirit comes down to equip the church for its work of witness and mission in the world. We're told here, verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a formulaic phrase from the Old Testament scriptures that, that, in, that describes an endowment of God's power and authority for a specific task. So in the Old Testament, the prophets were filled with the Spirit, and then they spoke God's words, or the judges. You know, if you read Judges, they were filled with the Spirit, and Samson reaches over and grabs a donkey jawbone and goes and destroys a whole bunch of, you know, raiders coming against God's people, whatever the case might be. But in the Bible, when the Spirit comes, it's always for a specific purpose, specific assignment. It's no different here. If you've, uh, if you've seen the old James Bond movies, it's getting real now, right? James Bond. It goes something like this. There's a mission. There's some bad guy that's about to blow up the world, and James Bond, for whatever reason, is always the only one that can stop him. And he's called into M's office. He finds himself there, and she tells him what, what the deal is. She gives him the mission, and then, and then off he goes, right? No. If you, if you know the movies at all, when he leaves M's office, he always makes a stop before he goes out on the mission. Where does he go? Somebody tell me. He goes to Q. Right? And Q is everybody's favorite, favorite character, isn't he? Q's the guy with all the gadgets. He's the one that has the chewing gum that if you, if you do it the right way, it becomes explosive. And, and, you know, and the x-ray glasses, which I've never really figured out what purpose, other than perverted purposes, those things you know, are for. But nevertheless... And, and the really cool cars with bulletproof glass and missiles just in case you get into a, you know, that, that sort of pinch. But it's not just a bunch of cool stuff. It, see, that's the point. Q, Q's job is to outfit James Bond for the mission. He gives him all of the tools and all of the weapons that he will need to be successful. And I don't know how he does it, but he always knows exactly what he's going to need, doesn't he? He gets some, some obscure thing, you know, that at, there, at some point in the story he finds himself in need of the very thing that he was given. Now, it's a silly analogy, but the Spirit is like the quartermaster. He is in charge of organizing and distributing the ammo and supplies the troops need for the mission. And so it's why in Acts 1, Jonathan said this, before we go out on mission, where are we to go first? You've got to go visit Q. You wait for the power to come, and then you go. And so his gifts are not for your individual edification there for the mission. And what is the mission? Very clearly from this text, the mission is the proclamation of the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth. The sign of the Spirit's coming here, verse 3, with tongues of fire that came to rest upon them because the mission was the gospel, was the gospel proclamation. They were filled with the Spirit and they began to speak, verse 3. And so this appears to be Luke's theology. Everywhere in Luke's writings, when the Spirit comes, Immediately, it's followed by gospel proclamation. The entire backdrop of this scene, verse 1, is the Feast of Pentecost, which was celebrated 50 days after Passover at the time of harvest. Pentecost was a feast celebrating the ingathering of the harvest. What's the point? The point is the spiritual harvest has come. Being filled with the Spirit isn't about going to a worship service. It's, it's not an individual spiritual experience. It's about being moved out on mission into the world. Pentecost, even the word, has become associated more with speaking in tongues and ardent worship services than it has the harvest of world evangelization, and that's a mistake. True Pentecostal power 
is power for the evangelization of the entire world. What's the first thing that happens here? The Spirit comes, and what happens? Peter begins to preach. Immediately, there's gospel proclamation. And what's Peter's message? Let me sum it for the sake of time. Sum it up. First, Christ died for the sins of the world so that we might be forgiven. Second, that he was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. Number three, from that place of power and authority, his sin is spirit. And number four, the Spirit's coming is the authentication so that you can know for certain Christ's lordship over the whole earth. And what is the practical importance of Christ's lordship over the whole earth? The gospel is going out to the nations of the world. The harvest time has come. And so what do we do? What do we do? If that's what this means, what do we do? Well, we need to seek the gifts and use them for the right purpose. To be filled with the Spirit is to be on mission. You were made for mission. I wonder if you know that. You were made for mission no matter who you are. Believer or non-believer this morning, you were made for mission. You were made for God's mission. And the Holy Spirit has been given to ensure that you have all you need to be successful. Holy Spirit power isn't for selfish gain or self-promotion or even self-fulfillment. It is always power to serve. Always. Always. And so a sure sign you're being filled with the Spirit is that you're on mission. What does revival look like? It looks like being moved out in mission. You're being moved out, out of your comfort zone and so forth. And so an application for us, if that's true, then a church filled with the Holy Spirit is focusing on drawing others, outsiders in, and then moving insiders out, not moving insiders further and further in. Moving out. Let's keep going. Thirdly, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means outside power coming in, and it means, it means the inner circle moving out. But third, it means the many becoming one. These, these apostles here were filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4. And as they speak, this miraculous thing begins to happen. The other peoples gathered, all the different nationalities there gathered for the feast in Jerusalem, understood them in their own language. Verse 11, you see this. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what is this? These tongues here are different than what has become associated with Pentecostal, with tongues in Pentecostal theology. I mean, there's some question about 1 Corinthians 14. Luckily for me, this is not a tech, not a sermon on 1 Corinthians 14. We're talking about Acts 2 here, and what happens here in Acts 2 is very clear. These tongues are languages. They're the languages of the people gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world for the feast. And so on the day of Pentecost, the mighty works of God, God's miraculous salvation in Jesus was heard in all of these different languages at the same time. You see the list, verse 11 through 9, 9 through 11. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Phrygia, Egypt, Libya, Cretans, Romans, and so forth. This is a symbolic event. The meaning of the tongues has to be understood by that symbolic event. So almost every commentator says that what's happening here in Acts 2 at Pentecost is the reversal of the curse that happened in Genesis chapter 11 at Babel. God is undoing what he did there in Genesis 11. So at Babel, human languages were confused. We no longer could understand one another, and the people were scattered all over the world. But here at Pentecost, what's happening is is we're being brought together. There's a mutual understanding and commonality among God's church that signals that the nations are now going to be gathered to Christ. So, John Stott says at Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas at Pentecost, heaven humbly descended to earth. The implication of this is that no language and no culture has precedent over any other in the Christian faith. This is a really big deal, by the way, that Christianity is different from Islam, for example. Islam teaches that God only speaks Arabic. I don't know if you knew that. So if you read the Quran and it's in English, you're not reading the true word of God. 
You have to read it and hear it in Arabic. And there's a, there's a unified worldwide Islamic culture, and anywhere Islam becomes ascendant, uh, the cultural forms begin to change drastically to conform to Islamic cultural forms. This is not the case in Christianity. Christianity is completely different. Christianity is a multicultural, you know, group. Is- Islam is monocultural. Christianity is multicultural. And so we see they all heard in their own language. In other words, there's no one form, no one denominational expression, no one liturgical rule. Don't, you can't, you're not allowed in Christianity to take your culture, the music you like, and your personality, and your political views, and all of these sorts of things, and say, that's Christianity and everything else is not. I mean, real, real Christianity is not my particular kind of Christianity in my culture. Those are different things. They're not the same. 45-minute sermons like this one, unfortunately, you know, or expressive, expressive worship services. Listen, one is not superior to the other. Got really quiet. One, one is not the real thing, and the other is something lesser. I mean, Pentecost won't let you do that. A sure sign that you're being filled with the Spirit is that you find your ability to enjoy and appreciate people and cultures who are different from you. You find your ability to do that increasing. You see, if you're in the should always be this way group, you know, you grew up charismatic or you prefer charismatic worship, whatever the case might be, then being filled with the Spirit means you don't judge people who are less effusive than you are. It's just they're different. It's okay. You don't have to shout and dance to be experiencing joy. You don't have to. Some people might. But, but not everybody has to. And if you're in the, it's no longer this way group, you don't look at the other group and say, man, they just don't get it. Nobody, nobody gets to feel superior to anybody else. Where there's a feeling of superiority, the spirit has been quenched. Nobody gets to feel superior to anybody else because Christianity is grace. And so, a church filled with the spirit insists that their own particular kind, we have a brand of Christianity, we have worship the way we do it, but it's not the only kind. Goodness, let's hope not. The first worship service we see here was a multicultural, multinational, multilingual event, many languages, many cultural expressions and so forth, and we need to be working. Part of being, begging God for revival and being, the, the hope of being, being filled with the Spirit is that we would be working to be as racially, culturally, socioeconomically diverse as we possibly can be. Not because of some liberal, liberal agenda. Diversity and ecumenism like that, it's not a liberal thing, it's a Holy Spirit thing. If this text is any indication. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does revival look like? It means outside power coming in and inside the inner circle moving out. It means the many becoming one. And let me, let me come to a close. Lastly, it means the gospel warming the heart. We have the image of fire here again, just like in Luke 24, right? So some of the commentators I wrote this week, they, they pointed back to Luke chapter 3. When Jesus is baptized, Luke says, and this is, this is, I said to the earlier group, you know, think about this this afternoon for a little while. The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes down upon the second person of the Trinity, the Son. In his baptism, Jesus receives the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes down, he gets a revelation. There's a voice from heaven. The heavens open and a voice and here's what the voice says, you are my beloved son with you, I'm well pleased. And it changed him. Something about the, the experience. It's what lit a fire in him for the mission God the Father had given to him. Now in Romans eight sixteen, 
Paul writes that the fullness of the Spirit is described there as Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. In other words, the Spirit's powerful working in us is an assuring of God's love for us, his assurance for us of God's fatherly love and care for us. And it's exactly what happens uh, to Jesus as, at his baptism. Galatians is the same thing. Galatians, Paul writes, God sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in all those places, it's the job of the spirit to convince you that God loves you. He assures you that you're a child of God that, that, so that you feel it. It's not just an abstract truth in your life. It, you don't just know it in your head. It becomes real to your heart. It begins to warm your heart. That's the experience of revival. That's the experience of being filled with the spirit of God, that God lo- God's love for you moves from being an abstract thought to becoming a fiery reality in your soul. Thomas Goodwin tells a story that illustrates this. He says one day he was watching a father and son walking along the street. They were talking and enjoying one another, and it was obvious, you know, that the father loved his son very much. And then at one point, father bends down and he sweeps the son up into his arms and he hugs him and he kisses him and tells him how much he loves him. And the little boy puts his arms around his dad and squeezes his neck and you can just see the enjoyment on his face. And then he said, you know, then the father put the little boy down again and they just kept walking. Thomas Goodwin said, he asked a question, he says, was the little boy more a son in his father's arms than when he was walking beside him? And the answer, of course, is no, right? No. Legally, no. Objectively, no, no difference. Subjectively, big difference. In his father's arms, he was experiencing his father's love. He could feel his father's strength in his embrace. He could hear his affection in his tone of voice. He was was experiencing his sonship, being wrapped in his father's arms. That's being filled with the Spirit. Look what happens. Look what happens here. (laughs) These men are substantially changed. They say, man, they're drunk. That's what they say. They're so changed that everybody around them says something must happen. Now, it's interesting. In Ephesians 5.18, you have the phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the first part of the verse is? Do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk. Now, I know you never thought you'd hear a pastor say that. It's also not at all like being drunk. Let me explain. Tim Keller said it so well. I think he said the reason the crowds think they're drunk is because of their joyful fearlessness. They were speaking the gospel without inhibition. They were too happy to be afraid of anything. They were too happy to care about what other people thought about them. They lacked any inhibition. And this, of course, at least I'm told, is what alcohol does to you. Right? It it, it just destroys your inhibitions. If you've had too much to drink, you begin to say things that you would normally not dare say. You begin to do things that would be out of character for you otherwise that you never have the courage to do. And so the Holy Spirit does the same thing. Isn't that interesting? But But the... The Spirit is characterized by freedom and fearlessness and joy. The fullness of the Spirit is. But it doesn't work in the same way that alcohol does because alcohol makes you brave by making you stupid. Right? You're less aware of reality. So the things that would normally bother you aren't bothering you. You're not thinking straight because what alcohol does is it hides reality from you. But the Spirit gives you joy not by making you stupid, not by making you less aware of reality, but by making you more aware of reality. You get happy and brave through intelligence, through truth, coming home to the heart. You see that? Now, what does Pentecost mean? It means new power, 
for mission that brings the church together as they rejoice in the gospel. That's my, you want to know what revival would look like? It would look like new power for mission that brings us together, rejoicing together in the gospel. And what should we do? Verse 38, Peter is very clear. What do you do? What, is, what are we commanded to do in light of this? Repent. Not just once, but a whole life of turning away repentance. A.W. Pink, in his little book about the Holy Spirit, he says that the Spirit came down after Christ was lifted up. That's the order. The Spirit comes down after Christ is lifted up. And so if you want more of the Spirit's power, if you would, if you would say this morning, I feel like I'm just a couple of embers about to, to die and be nothing more. If you want more of the Spirit's power, exalt Christ in your heart. What does that mean? Confess your need of him. Stop trusting your own strength. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Stop looking within yourself for help. Stop looking around for somebody else to help. Look up at the risen, exalted Christ. That's when the Spirit comes down. So let's pray. So as we sing together now in these moments, Father, we do pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see with faith the risen and exalted Christ, the one who died for us because he loves us, who went to the grave so that we might never taste death and who was raised in newness of power and now offers us the same power with which to live. All of that is ours in the gospel. Uh, all of that is the truth that is, uh, that is true of our lives and so we have no need to be afraid. Uh, Lord, we can be characterized like these disciples by this joyful thoughtlessness, this joyful um, bravery where we would be uh, empowered to do things we would otherwise be too afraid to do, to say things we would be too uh, concerned what others might think to say. Lord, would you do that? Would you fill us? Would you bring revival to your church? Would you revive our hearts? Would you blow in these moments upon the embers of our lives that we might catch fire? Lord, we need you. We cry that out. We sing it now. Lord, we need you. We can't do this on our own. Come and help us. Help us in our parenting. Help us in our marriages. Help us in our jobs. Help us in this mission you've given to us. We can't do it without you. That's what this text teaches, and so would you come as we cry out to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the prophet Ezekiel goes out one day into a valley, and it's, and it's just a graveyard. It's filled with dead, dry bones. And then the sound of a mighty wind comes, and God blows upon the valley, and the dry bones live. That's the promise of that text there. So no matter where you are, no matter what you came into this room from, no matter what you're headed back out, what deadness, what dryness, what brokenness might be true, that if the Spirit of God were to come in power upon you, uh, your deadness and your dryness would live. That's our hope. Lord, renew us. Renew us like that. And the first step to that is to hear these words. When these words, when the promise of God's love for you, when all that Christ has done for you, the gospel of grace and, and what is now available to you because of it comes home to your heart, that's when, that's when that living power comes. So receive these words as he sends us out uh, to go into the world on mission. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.